Hey, 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 welcome back. Today we're going to go into episode two with Professor Dan Ippolito from Anderson University. We're going to continue talking about evolution, go into some of the proofs and the ideas behind it, and why he believes it as a Christian. So sit back and relax and enjoy this episode of Pilgrims and Prodigals. Thanks for listening. Apologetics, in my opinion, is the most shareable part of That's the reasoning side. Spiritual experience isn't easily shared. I can describe my experience, but I cannot make it mean the same thing that it meant to me, to you, via conversation. Whereas apologetics, I I feel like if you throw aside apologetics, you're laying aside most aspects of a shareable faith, in my my opinion, because I I can have a factual conversation about apologetics with a small element of faith. Whereas if I described you a spiritual experience, it would, I I'm requiring of you a huge leap of faith to come to me where I'm at and the gospel that I preach air quotes. I basically agree with you just to play devil's advocate. One might respond that rather than harp on apologetics, lead by example, let your life speak for itself. True. But I don't disagree. With I that. have come to the conclusion that apologetics has a limited but very real value. Mm-hmm. That it can get a person to the point that they will say Christianity is reasonable. Exactly. Beyond that, again, it's the inclination of the heart. And also, and I think, if I may speak so boldly, this is one of the problems with evangelicalism. Uh, evangelicals don't start with the person of Jesus Christ, even though they talk a lot about the personal relationship with Christ, letting Jesus into your heart. They start with the book. It's true. Yeah. Very true. But and, and but the book comes to us through the church. But also, let's remember that Christianity spread through the ancient world before the Gospels were written down. Exactly. True. The Bible wasn't put together till three centuries after Christianity well, the, the started The canon, spreading. as we know it, was determined at the Council of Nicaea. 300-something. 300-something, exactly. Yeah. But the Gospels were written down, I think, between 60 and 80 AD. Okay. But okay. prior to that, the word of mouth of a very real experience... Uh, propped up the spread of Christianity. I mean, the the apparitions of Jesus after the resurrection. um, Really, if you were to ask me to give an apologetic, I could talk about the anthropic principle, about this and that. But really, to me, uh, think of the the three great monotheistic religions, Islam, Mm -hmm. Judaism, and Christianity. The -hmm. founder of Islam was Muhammad. The founder of Judaism, as we know it, was Moses. Mm -hmm. Both of them died in honored old age with successors ready to pick up the mantle. Um, Jesus, on the other hand, died a very young man in disgrace, executed as a common criminal. Uh, His disciples were scattered. They were afraid even to be seen in public. 
And then something momentous happens. They start speaking boldly. They travel to the four corners of the world. All but one of them die a martyr's death. Furthermore, if either the Sanhedrin or Pilate had wanted to nip this in the bud, all they had to do was produce his body. And there is no record of that happening. That's true. And so it seems to me that something really momentous, outstanding, must have happened to change the lives of those people and to spread this faith before anything was written down. And so I would start with what Catholic theologians call the Christ event, as opposed to nitpicking over specific verses of Scripture. Yeah, yeah. And I... It's the theory exists that uh, apostles around the time uh, they're correlated with other um, fanatics that have died for what they believed in and things like that. Like, say, they really did see a vision of Christ as a hallucination, but the fact that a shared and congruent hallucination occurred between multiple people is just it doesn't follow logical principles and also a, a complete character shift from scared um scattered disciples to bold world changing philosophers or followers of Christ depending on your view of it it i think it logically presents itself as something great and supernatural occurring. And, and you're right. There had been other people who proclaimed themselves messiahs. There had been a fellow whose mm-hmm. name was Bar Kobka. They even coined, made coins that said Bar Kobka is the messiah. And then, you know, the Romans put down the rebellion. And unless you're a real scholar of that period, you've never even heard his name. True. But somehow, you know, the, na- the name of Jesus stuck around yeah who was it it was one of the uh the jewish scholars jewish teachers rabbis of the time um whenever the sanhedrin or not the sanhedrin but just the pharisees or whoever the leaders were uh were talking about it and i forgot it was in the bible i forgot what the guy's name was but he said he listed off a couple different leaders who led these uh uh, yes, it's in the it's messianic in, rebellions. It's in the book of Acts. I forget his name, but he yeah. said, "You know what? Uh, if this guy's a phony, then just like all the others, yeah. you know, his name will fade from memory. Mm-hmm. And if he's not, you know, who, who are we to fight the Messiah?" So yeah, he took kind of a pragmatic God? approach. Yeah. Yes. And the problem is, it hasn't went away. For for the rest of the world, that and, darn Christianity. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, no, it's interesting because if you think about it. In the 60s, for example, there was a death of God movement, the mm-hmm. idea mm-hmm. that uh, with progress, you know, religion would wither on the vine. Yeah. And while it has somewhat in North America and Western Europe, it is more lively than ever in the Southern Hemisphere mm-hmm. and in places like South Korea. There are probably more clandestine Christians in China than in most, than in most of Western Europe. True. So certainly that that prediction has not come true. Could we take a little break? Sure. Yes, we can. We'll be right back, guys. Guys, yeah. I would like to talk a little bit about how anti-evolutionism and creationism happened to, to arise in this country. Yeah, I was, one of the questions we had to ask was, why are Christians so afraid of evolution? Okay. Is, is So I think we, is it okay if we start from Absolutely. there? Absolutely. Okay. We're rolling. Okay, let me give you a little historical background. Uh, 
uh, as part of the second uh, Great Awakening, a, a particular Christian group was formed called the Millerites. The mm -hmm. Millerites were an apocalyptic sect that had, decide, had calculated the time of the end of the world, as happens every once in a while. Yeah. They sold all their belongings, went up on a hill waiting for the rapture, which didn't materialize. They recalculated the date of the end of the world 10 years later. Same thing. It still didn't end. Some people left. Some people split off and became the Seventh-day Adventists. Ah, hmm. okay. Now, there was a Seventh-day Adventist gentleman. Now we're in the 1920s. His name was George MacReady Price. He had about a year of college. He was a self-taught geologist. And he was very influenced by the visions of Ellen White, who was the teenage prophetess mm, of she was the one that started it. Seventh-day Adventist yeah. movement. And who claimed to have been present at creation, and lo and behold, it was just as described in Genesis 1. Everybody <laughs> conveniently forgets that there's a different creation story in Genesis 2, but let's set that aside for the time <laughs> being. George McCready Price, with a little bit of geology he knew, decided that the features of the earth as we know them, mountains, ocean basins, canyons, and so on, had not been carved by slow, gradual geological processes, but by the Noachian flood. Mm. His ideas gained traction. He was invited to speak in churches and so on, and they found a fertile ground. Now, what was happening in the 1920s? A number of things. You had liberal Protestantism coming over from Europe. You know, we're going to read the Bible like any other ancient book. We're going to rule out the possibility of miracles and so on. Okay. Plus, we had the waves of immigration into the United States, which meant that public schooling became much more important to socialize these immigrants. So yeah. parents felt that they were losing some authority over their children. They were no longer taught in the little schoolhouse around the corner. They had to go to public school. Yeah. Plus, there was the, um, to be fair, social Darwinism, you know, ugly, crazy stuff, you know, corrupting Darwin's views to prop up the economic status quo. So all of this provided a fertile ground for somebody to say, no, 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 this is not how it happened. It's all due to Noah's flood. Yeah. Then things simmered down a little bit in the 40s and 50s. Then in the 60s, we have the space race. For a while, it looks like the mm -hmm. Soviets are winning. They put Sputnik in orbit. They put Yuri Gagarin in orbit. All of a sudden, there's a major push to modernize science education, which also means incorporating the latest discoveries of science. That's when... I.e. Uh, evolution. Yeah. Exactly. That's when Whitcomb and Morris discover George McCready Price's works, update them, write the book The Genesis Flood, sue to have it taught in the public schools. They are rebuffed by the courts, which say that this is not mainstream science, this is an idiosyncratic religious view. That's when they found the Institute for Creation Science, um, 
and with their own parallel set of publications. This really encourages the homeschooling movement. Now, I know that not everybody homeschools to shield their children from evolution. Some people are just unhappy with public education, mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes rightly so. And so in the 60s, we have this revival of young earth creationism and flood creationism. Yeah. Uh, and that gains a lot of traction in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, it is not a worldwide phenomenon. It has gained some traction in Australia and Great Britain and in the English-speaking world. Um, surprisingly in Turkey. Really? Uh, yes. Wow. And I suspect, yeah, a few years ago, uh, every holder of a graduate degree in science in the United States was sent this hardbound, lavishly illustrated book uh, uh, proposing, you know, young earth creationism from a Muslim angle. Apparently this, this Smithsonian institution got so many that they used them as doorstops. Okay. I have two copies myself. <laughs> um, so, but it is still primarily an English-speaking U.S. phenomenon, in part because of those factors I described. Okay. May I, I'm sorry, Perrier is getting to me. May I take one more? Uh, uh, for the type of discussion, for the audience, I guess uh -huh. you could say, that we have, or the community of, the community we're a part of calls themselves ex-evangelicals. Okay. Uh, because they're, fed up with evangelicalism and uh, to get to wet their taste to the conversation, we could have like a question and answer type of format mm -hmm. in the second half where we'll present a question and then get an educated answer and question, educated okay. answer and so on and so Absolutely. forth. Absolutely. So probably I should keep my answers not too long winded. Uh, I would, I would say yes. I mean, I don't want to limit you. Take your I time want, explaining it. I want it, it to I be mean... a comfortable conversation, All right. but um, if to keep the the conversation question focused as far as answering the the question and if you have like uh, another point is yeah, feel free to make your okay. points but yeah. does that does that make sense absolutely we've got a good 40 minutes before ben has to go Excellent. so yeah we okay. yeah we got 40 Let's minutes let's make so the we... best use of this time yeah. all righty let's <laughs> do sure. it i thoroughly enjoyed it because yeah. most conversation i have is very um uneducated and passionate if you know what i mean <laughs> Where there's, yeah. i don't have passion is good but it helps to know what you're talking about it yeah. does it, it does i yeah. think about things a lot but education is different than just being left to your own thoughts day uh -huh. after day after day and developing questions and thoughts and things okay let's get into this okay okay so so we have a few questions for you yeah so to uh to kind of go off of what we were talking about earlier about uh in the 1920s mm -hmm. with uh, fundamentalism developing. What is it, do you think, that makes modern day, even today, Christians afraid of believing that evolution is a fact or that it has happened? I Why think, is it scary? Yeah, that's an excellent question because, yes, ultimately a lot of that creationist movement is driven by fear. Uh, I think there are two main fears. One is that that the, the evolutionary account links us too closely to the animal kingdom. 
mean, you've all heard that our DNA is 95% like that of a chimp, you know, and so on and yeah. so forth. And so to, for some people, that really detracts from human uniqueness. It makes us too close to the animals. But of course, you know, human uniqueness is that we're made in God's image and likeness. It's not exactly how much of our DNA do we share with chimps. But for some people... You know, it was already a blow when Galileo said that the Earth is not the center of the solar system. Yeah, this yeah. This is another blow that because we're linked to the animal kingdom. For other people, the fear is that if we can't read Genesis literally, then where does it stop? You know, if this is poetic and this is figurative, then pretty soon we're on a slippery slope. And what can I ground my faith in? Mm-hmm. But I think that's a little disingenuous because those same people don't take literally I'm the vine, you are the branches. Some oh, of them, that's true. Some of them don't take literally turning the other cheek. And so I would still argue that fundamentalists draw the line in the sand at Genesis 1 for the social and political reasons that I outlined a moment ago. Yeah, so, some of the, uh, the fundamentalists a lot of the fundamentalists fall into a certain camp where they take that turn the other cheek verse as if someone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him and shoot him because the Second Amendment is... <laughs> well, no, no, I'm, no, just, that, I'm just playing with that. Kind, but, but no, what I'm saying but, is... <laughs> you good. Can, I mean, no, the, the accusation is you can't cherry-pick the Scripture. Yeah, but true. But first of all, uh, translators have to make choices. I mean, the Hebrew language has no vowels, Words appear in the scriptures that don't appear in any other ancient documents. So mm-hmm. when Cam Ham says, I don't interpret the scripture, I just read it and believe it. Well, which translation do you read? I mean, oh, that yeah. is already an act of interpretation. Yeah. Yes. To be completely fair, the most genuine fear is that of people who say, but if I take Genesis and original sin figuratively, the garden figuratively, mm-hmm then is there any need for Calvary? In other words, if we don't have the original sin of Adam, is there a need for Christ's sacrifice? I would argue, and maybe this is simplistic, but look around. I mean, sin is everywhere. Regardless of where sin came from, we desperately need a savior. We desperately need a redeemer. So regardless of how literally or figuratively you read Genesis, we very much need a savior. So I don't see how one necessarily leads to neglecting the other. And an yeah. evolution, even if you were to uh, scientifically, I mean, it's generally accept. I mean, at least the Big Bang is accepted and there's more and more proof for evolution these days. If it were to be 100% proved, that doesn't disprove God. Um, because the the thing is, God is a non-material um, kind of aspect, kind kind of thing, and that is, uh, in my opinion, a good thing and a bad thing because it's not God is something that cannot be disproved, but at the same time, it's not something that can be proved. And for for someone, um, you know, I on Twitter I interact with tons of people, some of them being ex-evangelicals, evangelicals, agnostics, and then you've got the hardcore atheist who say, well, I cannot believe in God because there is absolutely zero proof other than 
non-physical non-physical proof for the existence of a god um so so before any other questions i just like how would you answer that question like how does someone who just desires evidence or proof like how does someone like that come to the acknowledgement of a god or does it require like a spiritual intervention do you think well, I do think it requires, as we said earlier, at some point you have to step out in faith. You know, mm-hmm. evidence can only get you to the point where you will say the Christian belief is reasonable. But let me make two quick points. Yeah. Okay. One is uh, evolution has nothing to do with the Big Bang. The Big Bang is, uh, is is a physical concept which is you know very very well supported. Yeah. Biological evolution, strictly speaking, has doesn't talk about the origin of the universe, doesn't even talk about the origin of life. It's a theory about how living things adapt to the environment and diversify. Okay. That's point number one. Fair. Point number two, there are really two kinds of materialism. There is methodological materialism and philosophical materialism. When a scientist investigates a new phenomenon, the rules of science require that you look for a material explanation. If a new disease pops up in the Amazon or West Africa, you look for a pathogen. And if you don't find the pathogen, you look harder. You don't throw up your hands and attribute it to God's punishment or to evil spirits. Okay. <laughs> now, about 50% of practicing research scientists are orthodox believers. Uh, in other words, by that I mean they believe in a personal God that you can pray to, not some disembodied force. Okay. Okay. Now you also have philosophical materialists. These are people who say that the universe is a closed system of matter and energy. There is nothing outside the universe, no God, no supernatural. Of course, that puts you in the impossible position of trying to prove a negative. And even the hardcore atheists I have noticed in recent years have retreated a little bit from trying to prove a negative, and they just say that on balance it is highly, highly improbable that there is a God. Uh, Fair. I think that's uh, it's a much more acceptable argument for me right. than there is no possible way. Right, right, because you're trying to okay. prove a negative. That's a philosophical impossibility. But all of this to say that there is methodological materialism in all scientists, not, not all, but 99% of scientists are methodological materialists, And there is philosophical materialism, and probably less than 40% of scientists are philosophical materialists. I I think that's an important distinction. You said less than 40%? Probably, because I would say if about 40 to 50% are orthodox believers, there's probably another 10% that would say, I believe in some higher spirit in a force. Another 10% that's agnostic. There really aren't as many hardcore atheists in science. The best data I have seen when you look at the scientific disciplines is between 30 and 40 percent. Let me think for a second. There's a researcher who's made it her life's work to research this. and Her name, having a senior moment, escapes me now. Uh, it may come to me if I stop trying so hard. But anyway, <laughs> she interviewed over 1,700 scientists at the top research institutions, and, and she found that between 30 and 40% would call themselves atheists. Wow. Okay, so, you know, that's something that I can I, admit I've been wrong on because, um, 
in my in my search for truth, I definitely have at least been leaning more towards materialism and and I do coming from the spiritual side of it um and I guess maybe it's just where we were attending and the the theological views we held were kind of corrupted mm-hmm. spiritually so that that kind of like threw me off on that so the last year or so I've been really I've been getting into a lot of scientific uh materialistic kind of searching it's kind of more i've specifically been trying to avoid spiritual spiritualism uh, philosophical which you really can't avoid the philosophical it's, it's kind of the point i'm coming to because mm-hmm. that has a role to play in our in our reasoning and all everything has to be reasoned through philosophically so i don't i don't know that's i've been looking a lot into anthropology uh cosmology like I was telling you about when we were emailing. Um, I don't know. So so for me, I, I feel like that's... I do need to return in some aspect to a philosophical mindset, at least to an extent, because you can't rule that out. Yeah, it's... Uh, because we can't know all things, and we never will, our, there will always be conjecture about what is in philosophy... Uh, because ultimate knowledge is essentially impossible when you consider all the things to know in the universe. And without that, the only thing you can plug into your worldview is philosophical reasoning of the things that I do not know. But also, I mean, in the 1920s, there was a school of philosophy called logical positivism. They basically said that the only questions worth asking are those that can be answered materially, and all the other questions are nonsense. Uh, they literally are, have no meaning. Of course, I mean, they didn't go very far. They found a way to get rid of philosophy. Well, I mean, for example, I <laughs> they mean, tried. can you put five pounds of justice or two pounds of integrity in this test tube? <laughs> no. I mean, obviously, that's impossible. But we know those things exist. And they're, exactly. worth, they're worth talking about. Exactly. Uh, in, the, in the mid-1970s, a book entitled Sociobiology was published by Harvard's Edward O. Wilson. The discipline of sociobiology now has morphed into evolutionary psychology. But basically, it's an attempt to subsume all fields of human behavior under this discipline of uh, evolutionary psychology, that any behavior, scholarship, art, law, celibate priesthood, ultimately serves some evolutionary adaptive purpose to perpetuate the species and pass on your genes. And it's, I've looked into that. Yeah. You've looked into it, and it takes you to some ridiculous extremes. I remember once I was listening to one of these hardcore evolutionary psychologists who was saying, you know, actually smart people go into science because that way, uh, if you accrue scientific prestige, you can sleep with your graduate students and your graduate assistants and really spread your genes. And, and, oh, my gosh. I, this guy was saying it with a straight face. What? It wasn't a joke? No, 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 no. <laughs> that was, but this is what I, what, what I mean by oh, scientific man. imperialism, that you try to explain everything in terms of these material mechanisms. And yeah. I, was th- I kept thinking to myself, you know, there are easier ways to spread your seed far and wide than to do a rigorous <laughs> science PhD over six years. But, but those are the ridiculous extremes that yeah, we get yeah. to. If you try to apply that to every facet of life. Exactly. Just like 
you know, uh, the people who say, well, since, uh, um, you know, our neuropsychologist is just a matter of chemicals and electricity, there is no free will, so there is no responsibility, so we need to do away with the legal system and the justice system. I mean, a moment's reflection would show you that that's an impossibility. Yeah. Um, and so... That's true. I mean, you get rid of... Uh, philosophy you get rid of morality you get rid of justice any sense of order everything becomes anarchy exactly i i you have no idea how delighted i am to hear a young person say that yeah because <laughs> this this is one of my um hobby horses we, you know we had you know postmodernism then we had deconstructionism in in literary theory now we have, you know, the cult of tolerance and diversity. And our culture becomes more and more bitter, more and more adversarial, more, oh, yeah. more and more balkanized. More and more violent, I because, mean, in late recent days. Because if there is no external, I would argue, divinely given standard to measure our behaviors against... Then, under a veneer of tolerance and political correctness, in reality, might makes right. Okay. It's true. Uh, it is. Before he became Pope Benedict XVI, then Cardinal Ratzinger gave a homily entitled The Tyranny of Relativism. Think about it. If you have an argument with somebody, I mean a civilized argument, you're both trying to persuade the other that your viewpoint more closely corresponds to an external standard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or if somebody takes your parking spot and you argue, this spot has my name, I have paid for it, in our legal juridical system, I have a right to it. If you cannot appeal to an external standard, then whoever has the biggest fists or the biggest club you know, prevails. It just becomes barbaric at that exactly. point. Exactly. That I feel like we're on two different sides of the coin. Fundamentalism leads to an abuse of power in one way. Relativism on the other side of a non-spiritual coin leads to an abuse of power in other ways because, like you said, it eventually comes down to might makes right because there's no standard. So. Exactly. Exactly. The only standard we have over here, there's no standard except what I say the Bible is, and it creates an abusive system, whereas there's no standard except what is acceptable for everyone, which ends up just being self-defined, just like this Acceptable to me or my tribe or my clique or my political yeah. party. Which That's is right. just what happens in church, in fundamentalist churches, I guess you could say, is what's right is what I say the Bible says, because I'm the pastor. Hey guys, I really hope you enjoyed the second installment with our interview, our discussion, our talk. We had the professor in the studio just having a freaking good conversation with him like always. If you enjoyed Ben on the podcast, give him a shout out. Uh, you know, he makes it to the majority of them now, but you know, I really enjoy having conversations with him. That's really where this project was birthed and that's where we like being. So I don't know where I was going with that. Anyways... If you enjoyed listening to The Professor, give us a shout-out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, email us, yada, 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 all our plugs here. Also, we have 
logos, and we're working on some merch now. Uh, we're working on hats, t-shirts, coffee mugs, you know, workout thing, tumbler things. Um, so, you know, if you're interested in some of our merch, if you like our logos, we've got some different ones that we're actually working with. We've got a Christmas one up right now, but we've got a lot of other cool ones that we have. But anyways, if you enjoy our show, go to iTunes, give us a review, a rating that really helps us out on the podcast charts. But all that aside, guys, thanks just for listening. And we will see you again uh, next week. I don't know, whenever we put up another podcast. So <laughs> see you guys.